Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Two women were subjected to a terrifying ordeal and they ended up being shot. They'd stripped the ladies naked, uh, they put pillars over their heads and shot them. How did they get into a position where they felt they had to kill these people, two perfectly nice women? Hello, my name is Simon Toyne and I kill people for a living. But don't worry, I'm not a psychopath. I'm actually just a fairly harmless crime writer. And my murderous thoughts only go as far as the pages of my books and the occasional podcast. I'm also the presenter of the CBS reality television series Written in Blood. And this is the companion podcast. Here you'll get additional content, behind-the-scenes insights and much more detail about the cases we feature and the authors I meet. This is the seventh podcast in the series, and hopefully by now you've watched the television episode. And if not, I suggest you tune into that first, and then have a listen to the podcast. That way you'll avoid any spoilers and find out about the story in exactly the same way that I did. In this episode, I'm joined by R.C. Bridgestock, uh, which is actually two people. The R stands for Robert, and the C for Carol, and they write the books together. They took me to a beautiful location, uh, the small town of Congleton in Cheshire, to tell me the story of a double murder that took place in the late 70s and left the whole community in shock, the ripples of which can still be felt today. But before we get into the story, I first want to tell you a little bit more about the storytellers, Bob and Carol Bridgestock. They're the first pair of writers I've met on this series and it was fascinated to learn more about how they combine their skills to come up with their books. Bob is a former detective in West Yorkshire who investigated dozens of murders during the course of a long and distinguished career. And it's these decades of knowledge of how police behave and the atmosphere in the police stations and in the interview rooms and courthouses that he brings to the pages of the books. His wife, Carol, also worked for West Yorkshire Police, but in a more clerical role. And what she brings is heart to the characters, adding colour to the stark black-and-white outlines of Bob's intricate, unfolding narratives. The nice thing about fiction is that you can always get the result you wanted. And that is not always the case in reality. You try your best and that's all you can do. But fiction, you take people on a journey. And we start off with, you know, the old call for me was middle of the night usually. For whatever reason, it's always night time. But boss, we've got a body. 
And from that moment, we take our readership with us. From that very first call, what does the detective do? It's about letting people know the reality of a, a murder investigation for somebody that's been there and done it in reality. Because murders are brutal, they destroy lives, everybody's lives, and it's horrific. Uh, and I'm pleased to say that I've passed that stage and I'm able to sit down quietly uh, and write with it, and write with it with Carol. Where Bob does the, um, as it really is, you know, so you get the warts and all, once I get the story, I unpick it all completely. I name the characters or rename the characters, much to Bob's distress sometimes, uh, because they mean something to me. She'll say things like, well, Susan did this, and I'll say, no, there isn't a Susan in this book, Carol. Oh, yes, there is. I changed it. I didn't like your name, the person you called her Mary. I didn't like that. I've changed it to Susan. So she likes to develop the character side and, and build up that, the family side, in, really, of, of Dylan. When a detective is dealing with a murder inquiry or any police officer, you get too close, he tells me, to that person, you'd never do the job. If you get emotionally involved, you'd never do the job. So I'm the one that's doing the emotional involvement in the books. So I name the characters, I give them a life uh, before the murder happens. Um, so the, the reader can actually feel how easily it is to be caught up in a crime like this. This can happen to anybody at any time. This is not unusual um, as we like to think it is. We are partners, you know, in everyday life. And I totally trust Bob and he totally trusts me. So I think you've got that element of we're proud of each other. You know, we're proud of what we've been able to, to do and, and we both work separately and it just works. <laughs> Collaborations are not new. In fact, there are more co-written books being published today than ever before. James Patterson, for example, currently the reigning champ of best-selling crime writers, almost always collaborates with other writers, which is why he can publish a new book pretty much every three weeks or so. In Patterson's case, I've heard he works on an outline with the other author, who then goes away and produces a first draft, which Patterson then edits. Now, some critics have argued that this means Patterson is not really the author – but coming as I do from the world of television, this method of authorship through creative collaboration doesn't seem that strange to me. Almost all of the best TV drama shows you are currently watching have been written this way, certainly all the American ones, and the writing and storytelling in those is generally accepted to be at an all-time high, so it clearly works. Now, I'm not saying Patterson's books are the zenith of the crime-writing art by a long stretch, but millions of people enjoy them, so he must be doing something right. For the Bridgestocks, however, the collaboration process is much more of an organic one. Carol told me that she often changes names and details of the characters in Bob's first draft to the point that when he reads it back, the story can feel totally different to him. And that demonstrates really the true power of character and getting them right, even with a brilliant plot and all the clever twists and turns that can throw a reader from one cliffhanger to the next, the story won't fully engage you if you don't care about the characters. So, what is the secret to creating a perfect character? Well, in a word, I would say imperfection. We are none of us perfect beings, and so reading about someone who's infallible is far too removed from our own experience and therefore slightly boring. So if your hero is perfect, 
then they're never really going to be in any danger because they can outthink and outfight everyone else in the book, which means there's nothing at stake for either them or for the reader. What we'd like to do as readers is emotionally connect with the characters and see ourselves in them. We like to root for someone who stands a real chance of losing everything, strangely. And if the thing that stands in the way of their success is actually themselves, some kind of inherent weakness of character that they have to overcome, then so much the better. Readers love characters like that because readers are exactly the same. We're all human and we're all fallible. The Chinese famously used to repair broken decorative pottery using gold because they believed the flaws were the most beautiful thing about a once perfect object. Persian rug makers did a similar thing. They used to deliberately weave mistakes into their rugs because only God can be perfect and people like and respond to flaws. And finally, the late great Leonard Cohen once sang, there is a crack in everything. That is how the light gets in. So, if you want to create the perfect character, you need to make sure they're imperfect. Put cracks in them and highlight those flaws with gold. Or, in other words, stick to that age-old maxim about writing, write what you know. I love doing characters. Characters are, uh, um, are something that I love, I love working on. Um, and, and that, again, is because Bob doesn't. They don't mean anything to Bob. So that it, this is like my little part, if you like. And our characters are all formed from people um, that we meet, uh, we know. Um, and very luckily, because we've both um, worked with um, in the business for so long together, you do meet your characters, you know, you meet your funny ones, you meet people with the, idio you know, the idiosyncrasies. And um, quite a lot of our colleagues will say, that's me, boss, isn't it? you know, Carol, that's me, isn't it? you know. And you're like, no. <laughs> But the other side of it is for main characters um, and in the very early stages Dylan was always loosely based on Bob so it's very easy for me to draw on um, how Dylan thought, how Dylan felt, Dylan's home life. Jen's loosely based on me so it's very easy, write what you know, you know they always say write what you know and, and being um, very young novelists in having only been writing for the last nine years and it's, it was easier to write what we knew. I'd find it very difficult if somebody said to me, right, write about the prison service or write about the ambulance service because I've no experience, I could research it, but I prob probably would not give a good account as I do in, in a crime thriller. I think there's an added value of being there because you can put some of the actual larger-than-life characters and some of the murders that you've actually seen, spoken to and dealt with uh, in amongst your uh, writing. The case Bob and Carol told me about happened in a particularly beautiful part of the world. It's the type of place that is almost quintessentially British. Rolling green hills, quaint stone cottages and farmhouses, sleepy market towns with black-beamed pubs and horse brasses surrounding fires in glowing hearths. It's postcard perfect, idyllic all of which makes the crime that happened there seem all the more shocking. Now, of course, crime can happen anywhere, though it does mostly happen in the home, which is also traditionally a place of safety and sanctuary. 
But the homes where crimes generally happen are mostly found in cities and big towns. Statistically speaking, it stands to reason that more crime's going to happen where you find the greatest concentration of people. And that means rural areas are generally considered safer. Also, rural communities are more tight-knit, less anonymous. They're kind of places where everyone knows everyone and looks out for each other, which also confers a feeling of safety and security. Fiction, of course, can be set anywhere and also in any time, though most modern crime novels are also set in towns and cities for the very same reason that most real crime happens there. Rural locations in crime novels were traditionally the domain of the Golden Age writers and their descendants. Think of Agatha Christie with a body in the library of a rambling manor house, a group of suspects assembled by an amateur sleuth who proceeds to solve the mystery. So, when you eventually combine those two worlds, either in fiction or in real life, the results are often deeply unsettling. In this week's True Life case, the village where the crime took place was Scholar Green, close to Congleton. And the crime was a violent double murder of two nice, middle-class women who were doing someone else a favour and appeared to have not a single enemy in the world. What was even more mysterious was that the murder of these two women seemed to be entirely without motive. There was no theft, no obvious suspects, not a single reason anyone could suggest why someone might want these two women dead. At the time the crime happened in 1979, there was a huge public and police response, one which was chronicled in the archives of the local newspaper. And when I went there, you could see from the headlines of 40 years ago how much of an impact this crime had on the community. Also, as the newspaper came out once a week, it gave sort of snapshots of how the investigation and subsequent prosecution developed. It became clear from looking at the headlines that they soon had suspects in custody, three men from across the border in West Yorkshire. Now, these men were known to the West Yorkshire police as violent thugs and petty criminals, and they had some form, but nothing serious, certainly nothing that suggested they would become cold-blooded murderers. And yet, that is exactly what they were. As the police investigated the case and interrogated the suspects, it became increasingly clear to them that the whole thing had been a tragic series of unfortunate events. The men had apparently hatched a half-baked plan to commit a robbery at the house, believing someone rich lived there who had a safe on the premises that was filled with valuables. When they got there, however, they found the two women, packing things in boxes ready for the owner to move out, just doing a neighbourly favour. The three men separated the two women, tied them up and tried to scare information out of them about where the safe was. But of course they didn't know, they didn't even live there. Unfortunately, the men didn't believe them. And so, eventually, the two women ended up dead, most probably to make sure they couldn't act as witnesses. It was tragic and brutal and utterly pointless and sad. 
Now, remember, this was a crime that happened way back in 1979, and during the making of the programme, we spoke to numerous people who'd lived locally at the time, or who were in some way connected. And what struck me was how much they were still really affected by what had happened almost 40 years earlier. Local reporter Brian Hansel was one of these, and he still recalls his involvement with the case with a great deal of sadness. Two of the men, Hebel and Jennings, were in blue prison boiler suits and Anderson was in ordinary clothes. He wasn't crying constantly as he had been at the remand hearing, but he was showing signs of emotion and uh, remorse. Whether it was real remorse, I wasn't in the position to judge or not. Uh, again, the Hebel and Jennings, they, they just looked defiant and contemptuous of the proceedings that although the lawyers who spoke on their behalf said that they recognized what a terrible thing they had done and they were really sorry and wanted to make it as easy as possible for the families by pleading guilty to everything. You got the impression just from looking at them that really the only thing they were sorry about was being caught. When the crimes were being described in detail for the first time it was, I mean it was silent and People were alternately looking at the prosecutor who was giving the details and looking at these three men. And what I thought was, how, how can those three guys, those guys who look like you know, troublemakers from the pub, how did they get into a position where they felt they had to kill these two perfectly nice women? It was... Um, Yeah, I, re I remember kind of feeling emotional about it at, at the time, and it, and, it, and, it, and it comes back and hits you again. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Of course, every crime leaves a scar and every murder we've featured on this series has left behind grieving loved ones and family members who have had to do their best to move on with their lives. But this case seemed to really sit in everybody's consciousness. It was like it belonged to everyone in the community and they all felt a degree of ownership or stewardship even. Some were really encouraging about the fact that we were retelling this story, feeling that it honoured the memory of the dead, but others felt equally strongly that we should leave it well alone and leave the past in the past. It's a question we've wrestled with uh, on every crime we've featured in this series. Is it best to leave these stories alone and let them fade from memory, or do we have a duty to examine what lies in the shadows and remind ourselves of things it would be much easier to forget? It's a really hard question to answer. My own opinion is that soldiers who die in war are remembered. We save dates in the calendar for them, we create rituals and symbols to make it easier for us to remember them. So why should civilians whose lives are cut short in peacetime be forgotten? Is it just to spare us some pain? My feeling is that we owe it to the dead, whoever or whenever they died, to remember them, even if it brings pain to those who are still living. Because the very fact that we feel pain shows that we are still alive, and our pain and sorrow honours the dead. And so for that, we should remember them. There is another similar question we've wrestled with in this series and it's one that I uh, wrestle with myself as a crime writer and that is how closely can you base um, effectively a piece of entertainment a fictional story on true crime events where real people have been affected by uh, these crimes and again, it's, it's sort of in this particular case, um, I think it highlights it very well, because with this case, you had uh, police trying to understand and a whole community trying to understand the motive behind this seemingly random act of violence. And now as a crime writer, you are always, you would be crucified by your readers if you wrote about a crime and never explained uh, the motives behind it um, and let your protagonist get away and let the um, people who are affected by the crime just kind of carry on in their suffering. You have to uh, achieve a degree of resolution. It's demanded by the reader and as a writer that's what you have to provide. And so I think in some ways when you do base uh, a book on a true crime, what you're trying to do is a do what the police were doing in this case uh, and that is trying to dig down and trying to understand why these things happen and also give it some it's a horrible word but i'm going to use it is give some kind of closure to these events um so here as i said you know these people uh, in this community around Conkleton were still affected by this 40 years later and i think the reason is is because there was no resolution there was no closure 
yes, the three men who killed this woman were uh, tried and convicted and sent to prison, but because it was random and because no one could point a thing and say, oh, well, they did that because of this, because this woman, I don't know, uh, there was some kind of long blood feud uh, and her father had done something to their father and so it was retribution. We, we kind of understand that. We understand revenge. But when it's random, it just terrifies us. And so I think, you know, part of the thing of remembering what happened and studying it and recalling it, I mean, yes, it scares us, but I think it kind of scares us in a good way because the truth is... Um, and again, this runs counter to what I do as a crime writer, uh, where often you are writing uh, criminals who are very calculated, who um, are very clever. You know, they sort of almost get away with it, and it's only through fate or uh, the, the dogged determination of the detective where they finally get caught. Um, they're really clever, these criminals. But in, in truth, in life, criminality and murders are pretty random. You know, there is no great plan behind them. Um, and actually, I think when you examine that and when you realise that that is the case and that uh, things like the murder that happened in Congleton here are so sort of rare, they're kind of proper black swan events that just, you know, it's like a meteor coming out and hitting you from the sky. I think there's a huge amount of comfort in that. This podcast is the accompaniment to the TV series Written in Blood, which airs on Sunday nights on CBS Reality at 10pm. Please feel free to tweet me any comments or questions you have. Uh, I'm at Simon Toyne, all lowercase, all one word, using the hashtag Written in Blood. Or you can contact me on my Facebook page. Um, it's easy to find me. There's only one Simon Toyne author. Um, and it's always great to hear from you. Next week, I visit Manchester with local girl Marnie Riches. Uh, the podcast will be live following the programme, or you can hit subscribe now to make sure you don't miss it. That's it from me, so thanks for listening. I'm Simon Toyne, and this has been the Written in Blood podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. 
seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.